This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Things are going well in Hamilton. I mean, you need only drive through the downtown core to see a lot of the development that's going on there. And you get into the discussion about, well, is it because people want to come down here? Is it because they like this place as an investment uh, situation? Uh, obviously, the, you know, people building things here, that means things are going well. Or is it the incentive programs? Because there have been a number of programs that City Council has put in place over the last number of years to help uh, attract those developers to this area, and especially to the downtown core. Well, things are going so well now that there's discussion about actually eliminating some of those programs. Not so sure if that's the best thing to be doing right now, but I guess it's a discussion we need to have. Jason Farno is all about this. He's the counselor for uh, downtown for Ward 2, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Counselor Farr, how are you doing today? Are you there now, Jason? I am. I hit mute. Sorry about that. That happens all the time. Uh, not <laughs> to worry. Uh, let's let's get into exactly what's available, and, and, and maybe uh, before we get into what you want to do or what you want to talk about doing here, um, how about, I guess the, the glasses half full attitude here is that uh, these programs obviously have been pretty successful. Absolutely, they have. And, of course, you uh, combine the success of the programs with uh, – uh, you know, an incredible amount of assessment growth in the core and, and throughout the city where we offer incentives and different PIAs and so forth. And uh, uh, some good questions were asked about uh, two and a half weeks ago at one of our general issues committee meetings. Uh, Councillor Marula, Councillor Ferguson has been asking for a while as well uh, about, you know, do we really need these incentive programs anymore when we have a hot market like this? And we have, uh, particularly in our downtown core, as they were referencing, uh, an environment that seems to be attracting people notwithstanding these incentives. And uh, so we kind of answered that with the motion uh, the other day that uh, didn't sort of look at it as an immediate uh, debate need. But uh, next year we'll get a, um, a look from our uh, Director of Economic Development, Glenn Norton, at uh, where we stand. So we'll get an update sooner rather than later on uh, on uh, just how effective uh, it has been. And then the review, as you know, Bill, with the big stuff, we generally do five-year reviews. Well, we just had one on the incentive programs uh, last year, and instead of uh, waiting another four years, we decided uh, we'll push that to a three-year review, and in 2019, we'll we'll review. And that, I expect, would be the time where we have the hearty debate and uh, discuss whether or not we need to maintain the incentives as is, or in the declining rate, is it uh, represents some of the elements of the incentives, like uh, DCs have been going down 5% a year for, for four years now? Uh, or do we just scrap it all together, or do we move around to areas where uh, we, we don't see the kind of uptake we've been seeing of late like we have been downtown? Let's let's talk a little bit about the math here, though, and, and the, the programs themselves. And I know some people just have a problem on a philosophical level about doing incentive programs at all. But but they do, I think, act as a catalyst to try to get the, the attention of developers, and, and certainly that seems to be working. But first off, uh, do you find that when people are investing, I mean, you know, we talked about the, the Leuna project, which is going on right down to the core, King William and Houston, and, and a few other projects. I mean, there's a long list of them, of course, that are happening. Sure. But do they, do they cite the incentive programs as one of the reasons why they're down there and why they're investing and why they're building? Oh, absolutely. In the past, we've had written correspondence from people like Brancor, who is now on his fifth of a five-phase development between Caroline and Hess, uh, who say, uh, you know, quote-unquote, were it not for the incentives, I wouldn't be uh, partaking in this project, uh, end of quote, although <laughs> more of a paraphrase there, Bill. But we've had uh, Rudy Spallacci, uh, Valerie, uh, also indicate that it was the incentives that uh, started these projects. But we have to remember, these projects began four, five, six years ago, 
Uh, and um, at that time, I think there, it was it, you'd be hard pressed to find any member of council suggesting that uh, incentives were a bad idea. So it's a different time now, and it just so happens uh, prior to uh, your call from uh, Elizabeth this morning, Bill. And me coming on the show, I had a call from uh, Mr. Uh, Branich, uh, and I said, you know, I'm going on bill at 9 o'clock, and we're going to be talking about where we're at with the incentive programs, where we may be in the coming years. You've said in the past that it's the incentive programs that uh, inspired you to make these, you know, multi-million, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of investments. I said, how do you feel about them now? Do you think we still need them? And a laugh that only Darko Branich could offer (laughs) followed that question, and uh, he tongue-in-cheek said, oh, yeah, you can get rid of them now. <laughs> he, he's, he's utilized just about every incentive you could possibly utilize and to full effect and, in fact, acts as a poster child for exactly what we were trying to accomplish five, six, seven years ago when we were putting these incentives into place. But, of course, the tongue-in-cheek bit was, well, anybody else taking advantage would be my competition. So uh, that said, I mean, it was, it was just in jest, but uh, the reality is even those folks who have taken advantage over time understand the uh you know environment now and it really is apples to oranges in comparison bill so that said um, and i'm glad you brought the point up into the to your other point you know for every dollar the city's invested on average it's roughly and i don't have the reports from the review last year in front of me but it's a 25 dollar return so you have to re- remember that Notwithstanding, uh, you know, the province allows us to do these investment uh, areas, these uh, community improvement plan areas, and in those footprints, we're allowed to offer through the Municipal Act these incentive programs nowhere else. And we choose areas that need redevelopment, that look, that we look to, to rejuvenate. And there are obviously still some areas in the city that we we need to continue to think that way. And, and if we can take advantage through the Municipal Act to create different boundaries, we'll certainly have those discussions in short order, order in 2018 and in a few years in 2019. But uh, it is a, a different environment now. And the one thing we can do, assuredly, is celebrate the fact that we made the right decision by choosing the areas we did and putting the investment packages together because we are getting a return. We're seeing brownfields and surface parking lots being redeveloped and where we were getting, let's say, $50,000 a year or $30,000 a year annually on taxes. Well, now, for all time, and this is where the leverage piece comes in, you know, we're, we're collecting two fifty dollars or, or $300,000 or much, much more in, in uh, annualized taxes, and of course that's forevermore. And so these are on lands that we weren't collecting those kinds of taxes before. So they do work. To that, and to that point, though, I think that's one of the key elements of the discussion here. Is you do get you get more than a return on your investment; you get a significant return on the investment by doing that. So, so why would you stop doing it then? Because you, you're not built out up there in the in even in the downtown core right now. There's still a lot of work that could be done. Well, and that's where I, I think where some of uh, my colleagues may be coming from, and you never like to put words in their mouth, is are there other areas where we need to focus now? And, and we already, in, in some way, shape, and form, had these conversations uh, two, three years ago. I mean, we were offering 100% development charge exemption. So on a major building, that could be upwards 900 or a $1 million exempt. Uh, on having to pay DCs because we're trying to incentivize or inspire people to develop on lands where we weren't getting much bang for our buck. But now you have a scenario where, you know, a lot of, uh, we have a lot of built up area 
where we have obviously a great deal of interest. We've seen just recently Mr. Lamb, and, and that's the Durand where there is no incentives. And, you know, notwithstanding he's not even started the process officially with the city of Hamilton from a process point of view, he certainly got the word out on what he wants to do, whether we'll be doing it or not. It's uh, we'll wait and see and see what the planners have to say. But there are people focused on... Um, you know, areas that aren't even in the CIP in the downtown, and Durand is the area in the downtown that, that isn't part of the CIPA, that doesn't offer these incentives. But for the ones where we do, we've already been declining those DCs at 100%. We're at about 80% now at 5% a year. With Tim McCabe, prior to Jason uh, Thorne's arrival as General Manager of Planning and Economic Development, he even began a program where, let's not say 100%, let's say 90% and 10%, can be within the purview of uh, the developer or the uh, proponent that's eligible for the incentive program to donate towards our arts and cultural uh, programs. And we, we've now, thank heavens for that decision, that was our first adjustment downward uh, to DCs or a tweak to the DCs in the CIPA areas, the Community Improvement Plan areas, that actually uh, went from 100 to, to 90, but also helped us uh, to where we are today to get a healthy uh, multi-hundred thousand, I think it's about three hundred fifty or $400,000 reserve toward public art. So, you know, we thought creatively outside the box. We still offered, uh, you know, to call that a donation. That's obviously a benefit to a proponent or a developer. But uh, since that uh, uh, program went into place, we've been declining in the last three years, four years at 5% a year. So, And that's not changing. So we already are looking... And, and, and making moves at reducing the incentive programs in these areas. Here's the concern, though, and, and I know that this is, this is something that's, that's crossed your mind, and it certainly has mine. Once you get momentum, and, and certainly the city has momentum right now, you know how difficult it was to get that momentum, and if you start to stall that, you know how difficult it is to restart it again, too. Uh, why would you? Why would you? You know, put something in, in reverse or, or to turn the engine off altogether when things are going so well. Well, once again, you've hit on the prevailing issue here in our segment because, uh, you know, it's something I said with our annual review the other day from Chris Murray. The last thing any of us want to do is take our foot off the gas. And that's not just with the downtown renewal, inner city renewal, all the great things that are happening in our city. And so that's why the motion I moved, there was two, uh, were more about give staff some time to offer an update and then what they felt was a reasonable amount of time to turn a five-year review into a three-year review. We can get it to you sooner. But uh, making the decision on the floor a few weeks ago probably wouldn't have been in our best interest. And I think the folks that were uh, bringing up the subject and uh, debating it in a less formal capacity uh, understood that and, and uh, with the unanimous approval of the motions to, to you know take our time but uh, continue to, you know, tweak where, where applicable, but not take our foot off the gas. And, and understand and appreciate that these incentives do work. They are still working, and we don't want to do anything brash where we pull it all out of any one area and then, you know, and some unfortunate circumstances occur where we're not seeing the kind of uptick that we've been seeing of late. Because, I mean, this is not money that's, that's going out there. I mean, it's not going to anybody until somebody actually comes with a plan and, and puts a shovel in the ground. I mean, it's, so it's not costing the city anything. I mean, there's a short-term investment on the city's part, but you get it back, as you mentioned, almost 25-fold back at you right now on an ongoing basis because of the, uh, the tax revenue that's being generated, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just don't see there's any need to touch this program at all. Because I mean, the money's sitting there unless somebody says, yeah, I'm going to build. Okay, fine, we can help you out with that. And that's the incentive right now. 
and you know as well as I do, this uh, with real estate, with building, with anything else, it all goes in cycles. And as great as things are right now, we could be having this discussion a year from now saying, I don't know what happened. Things just seem to dry up because that could happen. Yeah, so let's not take our foot off the gas. And uh, certainly that's not what we're doing now. We're basically uh, just, you know, moving a few motions to say, let's speed up the process on the debate, on, on coming back to us with a review and an update. And it's, it's at that time, like a year from now, we'll talk about it a bit. And a couple of years from now, we may make some changes. And at that point, uh, we shall see. But, you know, I'm trying to be respectful. I, I certainly have worked so closely. And, and Glenn, uh, prior to being director of economic development, he did such a good job as the director of urban renewal that uh, he's now replaced uh, Neil Everson. But a big part of uh, his success and urban renewal success was uh, the ability that they have as such a small group to facilitate all these wonderful programs. And and I worked very closely over the last five years with the, the urban renewal group. And I can tell you uh, that it was uh, pretty much... Uh, a given each and every time that someone came forward with an application, those applications were very much appreciated. And, and, and earlier on, uh, I really truly believe that were they not in place, there would be a lot of people, and you can't even measure that, the ones that just turn away and don't even make inquiries. So, yeah, you don't, th- those are the calls you never get, so you don't know the, who they are. Exactly. Chief Mullen used to say that about crime. You know, we could be doing a great job, but you never know uh, about crimes that don't happen, only the ones that do. So let, let's talk a little bit about, we've got a couple of minutes left here, about the programs. I mean, there are incentive programs for the developers, as the as per the conversation you had with Mr. Varanis just a, a couple of minutes ago, obviously. Sure. But you have things like facade improvement programs and things of that nature. Are those on the table now, too, or are, are you just looking at certain programs? No, I think everything will be under review and, and talked about. And, and uh, yeah, you know, you know, we have a grant program, and we've enhanced the pool of money i think twice over the last five years because the uptick was so great and that's where that leverage comes in it wasn't hard and in fact i think in both cases with in fact i'm positive they were unanimous decisions to enhance the pot because the pot was going down because so many people were jumping in that were eligible and making uh developments happen so uh but underneath that you know we have we have the loan program which is very successful and over five years through tax you pay back that loan uh, the uh, grant programs, of course, all the facades, and we're not talking about uh, uh, altering at this point for, uh, any of those programs that fall under the, the BIAs because that's a different kind of incentive. You know, folks pay into the BIAs, uh, the businesses, uh, into the levy, and, and they want something uh, for what they're paying into. And certainly BIAs, there was no talk about adjusting any of those formulas because they seem to work and and they provide BIAs with a little something to offer as opposed to, you know, having just, a, a, you know, the regular course of business. And, and if you do that, you're just basically a, a merchant association. BIAs offer a lot more. And with that extra levy, they do a lot more. Uh, so you get a grant or 50% off up to $250,000 to fix your facade if you're under a, a BIA, for example. And um, not only is that an incentive for you, the, the, the revenues from things like parking that only BIAs get go towards, you know, hiring a summer student to take care of the graffiti in that particular area. So they've run those programs for some time now, long before I think our downtown incentive program. They're very effective and that's not, not on the table. But the rest of it will be, Bill. And then again, it's not a debate we're having now. There were motions that said, basically presented timelines for when we will have the debates and that'd be 2018 for an update and then the re- five-year review will happen 
actually be like a three-and-a-half-year review in 2019. Downtown Councilor Jason Farr. Jay, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Have a great weekend, Bill. You too. Uh, lots going on that we'll get to in just a couple of minutes. Right now, though, we have to do a short time out. Glad you're with us today. The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Keep on trucking. A lot of folks trucking up and down the uh, link in the Red Hill Valley these days. And Well, Hamilton City Council is uh, counting the trucks and counting the cars, and they're getting a little upset about the wear and tear it's causing on those roads. Uh, council is going to spend 16000 bucks so they can count how many of those out-of-town trucks are using those roads. Reason for doing so? Well, they want to come up with some ways to ease congestion and maybe even get some money from the province on how to... Uh, Keep the roads up on tip-top shape. Good luck with that. Joining us to talk about this, John Best, of course, the publisher of the Bay Observer, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, John. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, Bill. This is a discussion and a debate that uh, City Council in Hamilton has had since uh, about 1997 when they opened the, the, the link for the first time, isn't it? Yeah, I've been hearing it for quite a while, and uh, frankly, I think it's a good idea. I, I, I think... Uh, any time we can uh, measure uh, traffic and figure out uh, where traffic is coming from and where it's going, I, I just think it, it helps with uh, future planning. And it's just a, overall, it's a, it's probably money well spent. I, I don't disagree with that, but I, I'm wondering if if the goal that they're shooting for here is is really unattainable. That is, in other words, to get the province to kick in to help with some of the cost. Oh, well, that's a whole other matter. Uh, the province. Um, uh, has shown in the last 10 or 15 years where it wants to put its money and it uh, when it comes to transportation it's it's almost exclusively in transit which is fair enough uh, so the, the the thought of the province assuming any uh, highway expense I think is is pretty slim I mean you know if you if you just sort of look at the numbers bill um, there are I don't know 6.8 million cars uh, registered in Ontario, and probably somewhere under 200,000 heavy trucks. So even if all the trucks on the link in the Red Hill were from out of town, um, I think what the numbers are going to show is that the vast majority of the traffic on those highways is car traffic that originates uh, or ends up or both uh, in Hamilton. And and if I was the Minister of Transport, I'd jump all over that number and say, you know, it, it is essentially a local road. Which uh, I'm sure is the argument that's going to be forthcoming. I, I, I don't know how many times uh, the councillors that, uh, that decided to support this sort of thing actually get on the link of the Red Hill. Uh, lots of us uh, do this on a daily basis, and, and you're right. I mean, I see transport trucks on the road sometimes, uh, and as, as as any other place. I mean, more often than not, in the middle of the day, in the evening, not so much. But at the same time, uh, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that uh, commerce? Isn't that what we really wanted to see happen, is is have businesses in the city grow? Well, we do, but uh, listen, from uh, work I did, uh, I'm not doing much now, but from work I did with the... Uh, with the Gateway Council, mm -hmm. uh, the one lesson we learned is that people hate trucks, period. So whether they're delivering that widescreen TV that you're looking for or uh, uh, a case of big yellow rubber ducks or whatever it is that you've ordered, everything we eat, everything we uh, purchase, uh, everything we wear uh, comes in one of those big 16-wheelers, uh, but that doesn't mean a thing. Uh, when you're driving down the highway and you can't see around a, a big box rolling in front of you. So 
you know, there's a, there's the, the side of your brain that thinks, and then there's the emotional side of your brain, and the emotional side always wins those arguments. Well, absolutely, and and you know, I'm I, I'm the one of the first ones that gets upset and gets ticked off if a, you know I, I hate getting behind a truck for that very reason, but I I have to rationalize it, look at the other side, and say, well, that 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 person's doing a job too; they're delivering goods, uh, or they're not. I I get the point that you know some counselors are upset about the fact that. A lot of people, they feel anyway, are using the link as a as a shortcut. Uh, you know the, that Detroit to Buffalo traffic or wherever it is going, or uh, trying to get down to the U.S. border and 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 using the link. But there's an inevitability to that uh, to a certain extent. I'm sure there are some trucks that do that. But you know, I'm looking at, for instance, some of the locations here, John, where they say they want to put some cameras so they can do this monitoring and get a count. Uh, they're going to put one at 403, Highway 403 in Sunny Ridge, another at the QEW at 50 Road. Now, that infers that every truck that they see there is probably heading on to the link, or, or the Red Hill, I guess it would be, from the east end. That's not necessarily the case. No, it's not the case. And, and the other thing is that, that depending on the camera positioning that may not get counted, uh, there, there could be all kinds of out-of-town uh, rigs uh, getting on the Red Hill and, and crossing the link. Uh, that may be destined for the industrial um, uh, malls that we have on the mountain. We've, you know, Nebo Road. You've got the Ancaster Industrial Plaza. You've uh, you've got the Red Hill Industrial Area. So some of it will be yes, out of town trucking, but servicing some aspect of Hamilton Commerce. Well, I mean, for instance, here's another example in another location. They're, they're going to put one, uh, they say, right at Golf Links and, and the Link, uh, the Ancaster Way. Of course, for folks, I guess, that are coming off the 403 and coming into town that way. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if that truck, for instance, is going across the Link and turning off and, uh, at the other end of the Link and going up to the industrial park up there, that, that's a good thing, the Red Hill Industrial Park. Uh, is the intent here to penalize those trucks? Well, no, it sounds like the intent is to try to get the province to to pay uh, more, you know, some share of the maintenance costs of the highway. And, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's a noble uh, thought, but good luck uh, would be my thought. Uh, you know, I, I think what the research will show um, is that the majority of the trucks are not from this area. Uh, that just makes sense, just based on the numbers and the probabilities and I think it will also show that the majority of the car traffic is, uh, you know, somewhere around this region. And at the end of the day, you're going to end up with, um, you know, uh, the, the preponderance of, of just talking about number of vehicles, forgetting about size, that it's going to be overwhelmingly uh, local car traffic, which will probably defeat any notion of getting any help from the provincial government, who are disinclined to support highways anyway. Uh, so I, I just can't, I'd just be amazed if Del Duca wandered into town with Ted McMeekin and did an announcement about this. Well, there's there are two things that they said, and, and this is going to be debated, I guess, at the, at the council meeting next Wednesday. Uh, first of all, they want to do something about congestion. Well, yeah, that's a great idea. It's very noble of them. But we knew this was happening in 1996 when they decided to make the link uh, as small as they did. They basically cut a lane of traffic out of there to try to save costs at the time. And uh, and I I predicted as you did and I think a lot of other people did that it was going to come back and bite them. Well, here we are in 2017, and yeah, the road's not big enough for the the volume. Guess what? We knew that was coming, didn't we? We did. And although, in uh, to be fair, the the biggest pinch point, the the reason the link is congested as much as it is, is not 
so much because of its own capacity, but where the pinch point is is when it merges with the 403. And uh, I know that uh, when when there was highway planning going on in Ontario, which is uh, quite a while ago, um, there was uh, there's always been talk about relieving the pressure by widening the 403, uh, which is going to be very difficult because if you go up that 403 hill, as you know, uh, there's a cliff there with a big net uh, on it, and uh, really the only opportunity to expand that highway will be some kind of a cantilever um, over the side. And, uh, you know, that, <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, they're actually considering that. Uh, they're, they're considering it in the sense that they know they probably won't have to do it. But, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a, that is a big pinch point is, is the actual merge on, because, of course, the merge lane is one lane. So you go from the two lanes of the link down to one lane, merging onto a already busy 403. So it's not so much the capacity of the link, although it is getting pretty chock-a-block. It's more that merge point. And same thing at the other end, at the, uh, at the QEW. Yeah, well, especially if you're going down the hill. If you're coming from the link and you want to get down to, uh, well, to downtown Hamilton or obviously to Burlington or wherever you're going, uh, the fact is the road's more narrow. Up lanes, there's a, you know there's an extra lane going up. I guess that's for the slower truck traffic. I understand that. Right. But it doesn't account for volume. But I think your point is well taken. I don't think the province is going to count anybody's ideas here, Hamilton's, Toronto's, anybody else's, to do road expansion. They just don't seem to be in that mindset right now. And uh, so, I, I, you know, if that's what they're looking for is help from the province to do something about the road itself, that's not going to happen. And if it's about tolling, which is one of the things that a few of the councillors have talked about, uh, you saw the government's reaction when the city of Toronto and John Tory saw, suggested that they do that, uh, to do it on the Gardner Expressway specifically, to start putting a toll in there, and pretty much got told, don't even try that because we're not going to allow it. I, I, so I, I can't see them doing that to Toronto and then getting on side with an idea in Hamilton to do the exact same thing. No, it's not likely to happen, uh, Frank, with this government, and I, I don't think, you know, the problem is that if we are going to make the necessary increases in a road capacity, I think the reality is that, that it can no longer be funded out of uh, the, the uh, general revenue purse. We probably do have to consider some kind of tolling, hopefully not at the exorbitant rates that are on the 407, I, I always look at uh, the New York Freeway, which uh, has all kinds of truck traffic, uh, but they're charging roughly 15 cents a mile uh, as as opposed to 40 or 50, 60 cents, I guess, when you do the, the calculation from kilometers to miles that we get on, on our 407 here. So, you know, I, I think the reality down the road is that there is going to have to be some kind of tolling if we're going to keep our roads up to a... Uh, a proper level. And, and by the way, you can talk about electric cars, you can talk about automated vehicles, you can talk about all this stuff. I've seen nothing that doesn't suggest that we're going to have uh, a 20 or 30 percent increase in the number of vehicles on the road over the next 15 or 20 years. Uh, Uber is not going to deliver goods uh, to anybody. And uh, if everybody abandons their car and takes Uber, uh, you're still going to have a lot of cars on the road. Well, this is a, a society that's still, excuse the the pun, driven by cars, uh, and it's it's not going to go away anytime soon. I mean, because I've heard the same thing about the LRT debate too. However, you feel about the project itself, whether you're for it or against it, uh, you know, this idea that people are simply going to leave their cars at home or sell their cars and simply use public transit, 
that's not going to happen. I mean, it, it, there will be instances of it, but I, I just don't see North American society, not just Hamilton, but North American society, all of a sudden changing their mindset. And, and you know, it's different in Europe. It's different in other parts of the world. But uh, we've made it so easy right now for, for vehicles and, and vehicular transportation right now that uh, that I don't see it changing anytime soon. I, I, you can chip away at it with projects like that, but it's not going to change people's minds. It won't even keep track with the increase in population and the increase in uh, in vehicles. And, and if, if we're talking about automated vehicles, which I think is going to be a reality for sure, um, that may, in fact, increase the popularity of cars. Uh, if you talk about electric vehicles, which, again, I think is, is the, the future, uh, that, that takes away the guilt of polluting uh, the, the world. Um, so I, I see you know, countervailing things, but I, I think there's a pretty good chance there's going to be, I'd, I'd say it's probable that there will be more cars, more trucks on the road in 15 or 20 years than there are now, and I don't see any kind of planning uh, around that. But back to Hamilton, I, I do think that the money spent, what is it, 13000 is a pretty modest sum. I think it's always good when you when you understand traffic patterns better uh, because it helps uh, it helps with the planning. I, I know that the city is looking at the province and saying, well, come on, they spend money on the 400 series highway, which, by the way, includes the QEW. Uh, but that's between cities. It's not in cities. Uh, technically, I, I suppose parts of those roads are. But uh, the, the, the mindset of the province, and not just with this government, but governments of the past as well, has pretty much been you're on your own if you live in the city. That's, those are your roads. That, that's up to you to do. And I, I don't know who's going to win the next provincial election, John, but I don't see anybody changing that attitude or that idea because no matter who's going to get the corner office at Queen's Park, they're going to first of all discover what we probably all already know is that they are not rife with cash anyway. That's right. And, I mean, if you look at the, the trend of the last 30 years, uh, it has been downloading highways onto municipalities. Uh, if you look at uh, what we used to fondly call Highway 2, uh, it's, you know, it's become a, uh, depending on which county it goes through, it's pretty much a regional road. Uh, you, you drive to Binbrook on what used to be Highway 56. Now it's Regional Road 56. Well, Highway so, 6 up to the airport now used to be Highway 6. No, it's not. It's Upper James now. Yeah, and and so I, that trend, I think, is pretty much irreversible, although, uh, you know, it, it, it is ridiculous because you can, you can shift the responsibility. It's like, uh, it's like public housing. You can shift the responsibility. Uh, but 20 years later, you see the chaos that we have here in Hamilton and, and much worse in Toronto. And it, it's fine to say it's your responsibility, but if the dough ain't there to, to, you know, to, to properly maintain it, then uh, you get what we're getting. Well, and, and that seems to be the, the way that the, the province is handling things. You know, they've, they've downloaded uh, not just the roads themselves, but, of course, the maintenance of those roads onto the cities, you know, with snow clearing and et, et cetera, and on some of the side roads. That I, I, just, I just think this is – it's great to get information, John. I, you're absolutely right. There's no such uh, problem here, you know, to have data to be able to substantiate your discussion points, and, and that's good to do. And 16 grand is not a whole lot of money to spend to get that sort of information. But if the intent is to take it to the province and say, see, see, now what are you guys going to do? Are you going to pony up? The answer is no. I can tell you right now. 
Well, this government has never been swayed by evidence uh, on any other <laughs> issue, so uh, you, you can gather the evidence, but it's, it's like Bill Cosby. You can gather the evidence, but you don't necessarily get a conviction. Exactly. So so to that point, I I don't know what's going on, which raises the other question, which I, I'd like to think council is going to include in this debate, is so what are we going to do about it then? If the province isn't going to kick in money, if the province is not going to allow them, to, uh, to even exact tolls on these roads, and, and they, they have already weighed in on that too, by the way, by saying, by the way, we paid for most of that road. If you're going to start tolling, we want some of that revenue. And that made the city drop that idea pretty quickly, and I can't see them changing that. So what's Hamilton going to do? I mean, we can't just allow the road to fall apart. No, we can't. Um, uh, you know, I think the answer is uh, we'll reach, uh, it'll probably take some kind of a crisis, uh, be it an infrastructure crisis where, you know, the uh, where some aspect of the of the road fails, and then maybe it'll bring people to a reality. Well, I mean, we've already hit that crisis to a point, haven't we, because of, of the fatalities and the accidents that have occurred there? Yeah, I mean, in, in a perfect world, uh, if that was really going to be a municipal road, it, it should have been lit. It should have been street lighting from one end to the other. Uh, that that would have a tremendous help. And I get on that road uh, coming back from uh, Glanbrook, where I seem to spend a fair amount of time these days, and, um, you know, emerging onto that downbound uh, uh, Red Hill, uh, you know, there, there's some lighting at the intersections, but it's, um, it's pretty black out there. Uh, it's, it's kind of a strange experience, really. Well, it's, it's worse uh, on the other side of the road if you're coming from Stony Creek and going onto the link. You know, you go to that big round uh, roundabout there, and you finally start heading up towards, uh, well, eventually going west on the link. Uh, it's basically black. You can't see the lines on the road, and you're trying to merge with traffic that's coming up the hill, and they're probably going too fast to begin with. Uh, there are lots of pinch points there where it's problematic. And I, and I know that the, the quick answer to that for, uh, that I got from some of the counselors is, well, they decided not to put lights there because it would uh, be a, a distraction and a problem with some of the wildlife that lives around there. And I, I, I see the point, but at the same time, now it's become a safety issue. And counselors seem again to want to push that off to the side and say, well, no, it's just that people are driving too fast. Well, okay, but, you know, the end result of those safety issues is that people are getting injured and some places killed, and the city's going to have to do something about that as well. Yeah, I, I think, the, you know, having driven the, the, that highway, uh, you know, pretty much on a weekly, three or four times a week now, uh, that there definitely does need to be better lighting there. And uh, that's, uh, again, it's, it's all money. Um, you know, we—I mean, we have a, you know, a, a really dysfunctional uh, government, and and by that I mean really at all three levels because you have all these competing priorities. So you know, in Hamilton, we're worried about, uh, you know, obviously one of our big issues is social housing. The other issue is infrastructure, which is uh, also a, you know, a, a, an infrastructure issue. They're both in both cases. Uh, the province is focused on transit, education, health. Uh, the feds, uh, God knows what they're focused on. They they don't seem to be handing out any money for uh, anything related to infrastructure, although they're promising to do that. Um, the the problem, you know, is that you've got three different governments. They've all got access to the public purse, but there's no coordination between them and. Uh, that's what, that's when how you end up with uh, you know some of these demagogues like Trump who who think if we bring in a business approach we can somehow coordinate all this activity but it's like herding cats and uh, I mean we are in an infrastructure crisis 
that uh, at some point is going to require um, all three levels to cooperate a lot more than they are now. Exactly, and uh, and that may be the starting point for any debate the council is going to have on this too. That uh, that if they're looking for uh, you know reinforcements to come over the hill from the feds of the province, it's not going to happen anytime soon. John, thanks as always. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Have a great weekend. Yeah, great pleasure, Bill. Thanks, John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. We're back after this. The Bill Kelly Show, nine hundred CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Well, Bill Cosby is back in the news. Uh, according to a couple of spokespeople for uh, Bill Cosby, he is planning on hosting a town hall meeting, a series of town hall meetings, we're told, uh, sometime this summer, on educating people on how to protect themselves from false allegations of sexual assault. This comes hot on the heels, of course, of the uh, trial that just ended a couple of days ago with a hung jury. The, uh, Of course, the prosecuting attorney in that trial said that he's going to lay the charges again and try to uh, bring Cosby back uh, under uh, jurisprudence to see what can happen. Uh, we'll follow that story. But uh, you might expect that the announcement that he's actually going to be trying to school people on how to avoid getting charged with sexual assault is uh, causing a great deal of uh, controversy, as you might add. It seems like almost everything Cosby does these days is doing that. Joining us to talk about this is Lenore lacassic Foss, who is the director of SASHA. That's the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton. Uh, it's great to have you with us again, Lenore. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. Listen, before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of this and the ramifications of this, uh, what was your reaction when you heard what Cosby was going to be doing? Honestly, Bill, I, I thought it was fake news. I thought it was a joke piece, like a satire. I, I am not lying. I, because I could not believe that this would be what's happened. And, and I'll be honest with you, I actually wonder if he is really going to do this or if this is just a PR piece around in preparation for the other trial? I, I'm not sure. Well, it wasn't Cosby that said so. It was a couple of spokespeople, I guess, uh, in his entourage. Uh, yeah. and, and one of them went on to say this issue is much bigger than just Bill Cosby, uh, and it's important for people to actually have these discussions. Uh, the issue can affect any young person, especially young athletes of today, this guy goes on to say, and they yeah. need to know what they're facing when they are hanging out and partying uh, and uh, the certain things that they should and should not be doing. I, I got a tip for them if they're going to go through with this, Lenore. Yeah. Uh, if you try to coerce women to slip something into their drinks, yeah, there's a pretty good chance that people might think that you're doing something untoward. Yep, exactly. And I think if you touch people without consent, if you move through any sexual activity without enthusiastic consent, making sure this is working for someone, you know, also not um, raping someone who's unconscious, and I'm not talking about uh, necessarily the Bill, uh, the Bill Cosby, but also when we look at things like uh, the Stanford uh, uh, case, the young swimmer, um, what's his name, Brock. Um, anyways, that he, he was a swimmer that was mm-hmm. uh, a, a Q, uh, uh, actually convicted of he was raping an unconscious woman in a back alley area and, and intervened by other students. Yeah, but he was a star athlete, though, Lenore. Yes, he was a star athlete. Ex- Which certainly exactly. weighed into the decision, didn't it? Yeah. Oh, for sure, because he did not get much jail time. And certainly he we see this as a similar move that Bill Cosby's doing because he uh, actually did the same thing where after he was getting out of uh, jail, he's talking about he's going to go around and talk about how young people can engage in like 
quote unquote safe partying, like somehow drinking causes sexual assault. No, drinking does not cause sexual assault. Um, this behavior is, we certainly know that rapists use alcohol um, and other drugs, uh, you know, pills, blue pills, um, to get compliance from victims to uh, uh get what they want from the person. So we this is a, a seems to be a new tactic we're seeing now. And we talk about how, you know, people say, oh, women quite you know, say they were sexually assaulted to get attention and to get money and fame. Well what is this? These are these are uh perpetrators who are are using their positions and now saying that we have a problem of false reporting, which is actually not true. So, and police will tell you this, uh, this is not Lenore making up this statistic. We know that it's uh, false reporting for sexual assault is no higher than any other crime. In fact, it's lower than some other crimes. And then it's around, depending on the research, a two to 6%. So this is not this is not the problem. The problem is not false reports of sexual assault. The problem is rampant sexual assault that's happening. And it's not Lenore making this up. These are all like statistics that you can check out. Gloria Allred, uh, who represents a number of the women who have brought accusations against Cosby, uh, suggested when she heard this story that uh, she figures Cosby's just trying to soften up a potential jury pool yes, for the next trial. That is, that is actually what I think, too. So he's trying to get his message out. This is all PR, which is sickening to me. Um, because they want to get the message out around false accusations and that I'm, you know, I'm now this champion because look what I've been through. Um, you know, I think if we have, your listeners really need to remember, and I know this is hard because I grew up with Bill Cosby too. I get it. I get that it's very hard for, for us to have this image in our head. But this is, I think there are almost 60 different women who have come forward with very similar stories. And he has also been convicted in a civil suit 10 years ago. So this is like, this is not, it's not unclear. And we know that it's not like he was found not guilty. There was a hung jury and they are going to retry him. So I think this is very much about getting the message out there to try to uh, get to potential jurors for the next trial. It's it's interesting. Uh, the publicist went on to say here that Cosby has had, uh, I think the phrase he used was hundreds of calls from civic organizations and churches requesting Cosby speak to young men and women about the judicial system, uh, as, as if to suggest that the ju- he was a victim. Uh, that, that seems to be the implication yeah. here. Yeah, which is, I think, so offensive, so offensive to survivors. And I know... Again, it's really hard for some listeners because we have this notion of who rapes people. It's, you know, people who jump out of bushes in the dark. That's not the case. It's most commonly someone we know, someone who's a mentor, a friend, a family member, a friend of a friend. So this is, this, this is very hard to sometimes resonate, but this is the reality of what happens. And he is not the victim. It makes me so angry that survivors are out there listening right now and feeling like, what point do I have to come forward? If I come forward, I will be seen as a liar. I will my my integrity will be ripped apart. I will be seen as as someone who's making up things, looking for fame, looking for money, and that's just so sad for me. Jurors are allowed to to talk to to the media. As a matter of fact, in the states, not in Canada, they're not allowed yes. to. But but down there, well, some of them write books, of course, about some of the famous trials that they've been in. Yes. And and a couple of the jurors that were on this Cosby trial, the, the hung jury. I have well, one of them identified. Called a Pittsburgh uh, television station the other day, and uh, and actually identified himself as one of the jurors. I don't know whether or not it was because it's awfully yeah. hard to tell. But yeah. uh, suggesting that uh, that the reason that there was a hung jury was they said, look, it, whatever Cosby did, I'm paraphrasing, 
said he already paid a price for it, and you know, with his the negative publicity, so we just we couldn't convict. That's that's one idea. Now, the one mm-hmm. juror who did identify themselves though as one of the people that actually, uh, well, caused the hung jury because they would not change their vote on this, said they didn't trust the woman who was bringing the charges there. Said they didn't trust her story, and here's why, Lenore. This is what just blew me away. Mm-hmm. They said because she went to Cosby's house once time and she, she, in, with a bare midriff. So, in, in other yeah. words, what she was wearing. That's that well she had it coming attitude, yes, which yes. is still there. It's 2017, yeah. and it's yeah. still there. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because we do a lot of education out in grade 9 uh, health classes. We talk about consent. We're with doctors, midwives. We go, we go everywhere, officers, and do training. And if you ask people, does it matter what a woman wears? Uh, does, should that matter whether she gets sexually assaulted? And people will generally say no. But then what we hear consistently all the time when we're confronted with actual victims is that we want to look at what were you wearing? What were you drinking? Were you dancing? Were you doing anything suggestive? What were you Have doing a, out that time of night? Why, yes. did, why did you go to that why nightclub? Why were you at his house? Why were, you know, and that we're scrutinizing behavior. And, you know, this is the thing that it's so hard for folks to understand that, um, you know, I might be at someone's house, I might be dressing a certain way, you know, or, or if I'm a young person and I'm going out uh, clubbing, I might, I might have been hoping to hook up and maybe get it, get it on with someone. Um, but I wasn't, I didn't sign up for this that happened to me. I didn't consent to what this was. And I think folks really have an, a, a very hard time understanding that unless you have consent, enthusiastic consent, it's not okay. And, you know, to me, I just don't understand uh, having sex with someone who's unconscious, that, you know, we, we don't want to talk about that that's a reality and that that's rape. You can't, there is no such thing as non-consensual sex. And if you are, are it's called sexual assault. And if you are unconscious or if someone is so incapacitated with alcohol, they are unable to give consent. So it's best to wait till another time. There's a, a private members bill. I wrote about this on my blog earlier this week, Lenore. I know you're familiar with this. That uh, outgoing uh, conservative leader, uh, Ronna Ambrose, she was the interim leader, of course, introduced a private members bill in the House of Commons. Uh, and basically, it's it's a bill that would uh, instruct all potential judges, anybody who's applying to, to sit on the bench, uh, to go through a course, an education course, about yeah. sexual assault, about the myths yeah. of sexual assault. Uh, about the impact that trauma can have on memory, uh, things that you and I have talked about in, yeah. in past discussions as well. Uh, yeah. it, it passed unanimously in the Commons. The Senate is holding it up, and I, for the love of God, I don't know why, but they wow. seem to be doing this. And it, it won't die on the order paper during the summer recess, but it's going to be very hard to reintroduce it. Yes. This this should be mandatory. And and, and clearly, yeah. when you hear jurors such as the, the one that identify themselves in the Cosby case that said, well, she had a bare midriff, so I couldn't believe her story. Oh, there, you know, there's there's an education component that's missing here. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and our judges are not instructing the juries uh, with that. They're not. Uh, I can, in Canada, it's a little bit different because we have, I mean, we still have many, many problems. But, you know, we are not taking the time to interrupt rape myths when they're coming up in courts. Like, we should be objecting to in, misinformation when, when defense lawyers are trying to say, well, this story is inconsistent. Well, we understand the way our brains work when a traumatic situation has happened is that memory is coded differently. I'm not going to get all science geeky on you, but it is different. And so we don't remember things in a way that's linear that maybe we do when we're not traumatized. So I think you're right that we are not educating within the system. And I understand judicial independence. And that's the whole problem with this is that judges want to say, we cannot be uh, uh 
swayed by politicians. We have to be independent. And I, I respect that. But to me, being independent doesn't mean uneducated or ignorant about sexual violence. Considering the prevalence of sexual violence for women uh, and children, and we know that this impacts boys as well as girls. So, I mean, we need to be like, it just seems clear to me, just like you get educated on blood alcohol levels, just like you get educated around um, any other matter that comes before the court. I'm not sure why somehow you would not get education on sexual violence. Well, I, I just find it so frustrating when I hear these sorts of comments. And, and by the way, I, I'm not dismissing the the idea of innocent until proven guilty. I get that, okay? And, and, and we're not suggesting that any time a charge of any kind is leveled against anybody that, well, they're automatically guilty. There, there has to yeah. be a, a trial. There has to be a, a system that's put in place for that sort of thing. But like yes. you say, there's a track record here in this particular individual's case uh, uh, and, and an admission some years ago that he was doing this sort of thing. And, oh, yes. He was found guilty in a civil suit. Yeah. So that your listeners really need to understand. That. And we also need to understand that, unfortunately, I, I believe in a, in a criminal system. I don't call it the justice system in sexual violence because I believe that we should have it. But we know that, unfortunately, so, so many people will say to me, well, you know, he wasn't found guilty or, you know, she didn't go to police. So there's somehow we don't believe it. But because our system is so broken around sexual violence survivors, we know that about 95 percent. That's a huge number. Mm-hmm. 95% of survivors do not tell the police because they don't have faith in the system. And these kinds of trials, these high-profile trials, um, remind survivors of that. And every single day in the courts, we have examples of these kinds of things. We know, like the whole issue of unfounded, they, many don't even get to, to the trial process because, you know, in communities across Canada, sometimes it's up, upwards of 30% of the time police don't believe the survivor who comes forward. So that's a, those are big problems within the system, and that's why it makes it hard for us to have due process and good process within the court. But there still seems to be a, a mindset, and I'm not just talking societal, but I mean, clearly within the system itself, whether it's jurors and in some cases even judges. I mean, yes. we've had some rather celebrated cases now. The, you know, the, the judge, you know, okay, why didn't you keep your knees closed? Keep uh, your knees closed, yes. The, the, yeah. the insinuation here is yes, that if yes, women yeah. dress a certain way, if they go to a certain establishment, yes. uh, that they're setting themselves up for sexual assault and, well, you've yes. only got yourself to blame. We're yes. still at that point. Yes, we are. And for me, you know, if Bill Cosby wants to go about and uh, talk to um, a town hall and give, you know, advice on how to prevent sexual assault accusations, he should tell people don't rape and don't touch people without consent. That's a great way to not uh, have sexual assault. It doesn't matter what the person's wearing, what was going on, if you're dancing with them, you don't get to have access to someone's body without consent. And we're talking today about enthusiastic consent. Make sure the person you're with is into it. That's the best way anyways. Come on. Like, we want to we wanna know that this is good for both folks. Always a, a pleasure having you on the program. Always insightful, oh, Lenore. Thanks so much for this. I love chatting with you, Bill. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Take care now. Lenore lacassic Foss, director of SASHA. That's the uh, Sexual Assault Center of Hamilton. Uh, by the way, uh, and I always mention this every time Lenore comes on, uh, if you want uh, their services, if you'd like to talk to somebody down there, simply give them a call. There, there are always people at the phone there, and it's all done in, in a confidential manner. And uh, they don't go to the police. They don't file reports with the police. Uh, they just are there for you to talk if, in fact, you, you want to get something, uh, uh, some, well, some clarification, anything like that. And if you, you feel as if you know there's something that, that has happened or 
Well, it's it can be a very, very difficult time, and oftentimes it's very difficult to open up, even to, to family members sometimes. But Sasha is always there for you, the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.